welcome to The Technicast, a podcasting community for people working in the arts and humanities. My name's Polly Hember, and together with Julian Plum and our new Technicast team member Felix Klutzen, we speak to different researchers about their work. Our theme for this month and the next two episodes is affect. Affect is a notoriously slippery term. As Gregory Seaworth and Melissa Gregg notes, it's rather difficult to begin with affect as it arises precisely out of in-betweenness, in the capacities to act and be acted upon. They define affect as the name we give to forces or forces of encounter which can circulate, stick to and shape bodies, objects and worlds. The idea for this month's theme was partly inspired by a project that I've been working on with Joe Jukes called Following the Effective Term, where we grappled with how to define affect and looked at the incredible ways that affect theory is being used in scholarship today. From Shaka McGlotten's work on queer witcheries, hexes and algorithms, to Zinyao's work on unfeeling and disaffection, to Ben Anderson's work on hope, politics and boredom. Mary Dawson spoke at the symposium we organised back in September about affect, ageing and nonsense in Barbara Pym's 1977 novel, Quartet in Autumn. I'm absolutely delighted to be speaking with her again about this fascinating topic as she joins us here today. Mary is a PhD candidate in the English department at the University of Leeds, where her research focuses on mid-century British fiction, critical post-humanism, disability studies and affect theory. What follows is Mary's brilliant talk on affect and ageing, followed by a short conversation on middling and in-betweenness in Mary's work on Pym and Angela Carter. I hope you enjoy. Despite extensive medical research and shelves upon shelves of self-help books, Two Weeks to a Younger Brain is a title that caught my eye recently. According to the UN, the world's population is relentlessly getting older. By 2050, one in six people will be over the age of 65. In 2019, that was only one in 11. The subtext here is that an ageing population is somehow a problem. It is an economic burden or a political challenge that governments must resolve. And in line with that view, Perhaps those living in Britain seem to spend a lot of money trying to resolve the issue, trying to avoid being seen to age, something in the region of £2.2 billion every year. It seems that one of the paradoxes of modern life is that those people who are more likely to grow old, because they have access to good healthcare, nutritious food, clean water and so on, are also more likely to want to hide the fact that they're growing old. At this point, I want to be honest and say that I am a mature student, whatever that means. I've come back to university after more than 20 years away. So perhaps understandably, age is sometimes on my mind. But I still find myself confused when I hear people talking about age and ageing. I'm wondering exactly what is being resisted here. Why are some of us so worried about getting old? Should I be? What is it that we're trying to run from or trying to avoid? Chris Gilead and Paul Higgs write about four ages. The third age is the celebrated moment of freedom and possibility that comes with retirement. The fourth age is old, old. It's that moment when bodies fail and people withdraw from society, becoming dependent on others. 
It seems that at stake in ageing is the loss of a particular idea about what it means to be human. Humans are supposed to be rational, independent and able to take care of themselves. Ageing bodies challenge that idea by making us recognise our vulnerability and our dependence. Alison Kafer, for example, makes a link between disability and ageing to say that anxiety about ageing is a symptom, a symptom of compulsory able-bodiedness and able-mindedness. So ageing threatens more than individual bodies. It also threatens the illusion of bodily coherence and autonomy that our society is based on. Social pressure to dye my grey hair is society working to keep that illusion intact. At the moment, I'm working with novels that reimagine what it means to be human. So when I read Barbara Pym's Quartet in Autumn, published in 1977, I was excited to have found a novel which thinks differently about being human by thinking differently about what it means to get older. Quartet in Autumn is in many ways an unassuming realist novel. It's about four colleagues who are approaching retirement. And it is a novel of Pym's later years. It was published after her own retirement from her day job and less than three years before she died. In the novel, Edwin, Norman, Letty and Marcia work in an unnamed office somewhere in London doing unspecified clerical jobs. At the midpoint of the novel, Letty and Marcia retire and this causes Letty in particular a huge amount of fear and worry. But she ends the novel in a much happier frame of mind. The last words of Quartet in Autumn um, say that for Letty, life still held infinite possibilities for change, quote unquote. When I read this, I was struck by how similar that phrase, infinite possibilities for change, is to the way Deleuze describes affect. Deleuze says that affect is potential unrealised in actual bodies. Affect can't be touched or seen or heard, but it's still real. Affect is impersonal in the sense that it circulates detached from actual bodies. But bodies can orient themselves towards affect. They can stay alert to the potential and possibility which affect offers. Gilles Deleuze's work is particularly helpful for Quartet in Autumn because of the links he makes between affect and sense and how he thinks about common sense and nonsense. Deleuze thinks of sense as having both a concrete dimension, sense references the physical world, and a virtual dimension, a presence in the intangible realm of language. Sense stretches in both directions at once, meaning that it's a meeting point between affect and actual bodies. Sense then is a crossing point between the virtual and the actual, between the intangible and the tangible. In this way we can see that common sense is what we rely on to keep society together. It's a shared understanding that reads words in the same way. Common sense protects and safeguards collective norms in terms of both idea, ideas and behaviour. In the case of age and ageing, common sense says that we should stay young and healthy for as long as possible. We should defend ourselves against old age, take supplements, do the crossword. Where bodies do become old, common sense, we should be caref- common sense says we should be careful. 
protect and limit our experiences just in case. In other words, common sense keeps bodies in check, limiting our capacity to act and trying to keep us all as close as possible to that shared illusion of health and autonomy and independence. In contrast, nonsense upsets and challenges common sense. Nonsense orients bodies towards affect as potential and possibility. In other words, nonsense disinhibits bodies, making us think about not just what is, but what might be. Deleuze often uses the example of Alice in Wonderland when he's talking about nonsense. But Pym's novels generally, and Quartet in Autumn in particular, also make remarkable use of nonsense. In Pym's novels, there are moments in which common sense crumbles and the text invites the reader to think otherwise. Those moments are where much of the humour in Pym's work comes from, but thought of in relation to Deleuze's work, they are also moments which turn the reader towards affect in the sense of potential. In the case of Quartet in Autumn, moments of nonsense don't just deconstruct social conceptions of ageing, they rethink entirely what it means to grow old. Take, for example, an extract from early in the chapter during which Letty and Marcia retire. The paragraph begins with an example of the free indirect discourse which characterises much of Pym's work. In this example, it is the collective voice of the office workers that the reader hears coming through. If common sense resists old age, because ageing challenges the illusion of bodily coherence and autonomy, Pym's wry humour points to how ridiculous that illusion is to begin with. I'm going to read the quote in full, but then repeat sections when I talk about them. Retirement was a serious business to be regarded with respect, though the idea of it was incomprehensible to most of the staff. It was a condition that must be studied and prepared for, certainly. Researched, they would have said. Indeed, it had already been the subject of a seminar, though the conclusions reached and the recommendations drawn up had no real bearing on the retirement of Letty and Marcia, which seemed as inevitable as the falling of the leaves in autumn for which no kind of preparation needed to be made. In this passage, the passive syntax, recommendations drawn up, means that I is absent. The collective voice of the office subsumes any individual subjectivity into a matrix of business speak from which there is no escape. In effect, Pym's prose challenges illusions of self-determination and agency just as much as age does. This collective voice has also somehow lost its ability to reason. Despite all the learning and research, studying and preparation, the staff are still unable to approach the incomprehensible idea of retirement, meaning that it remains unreal. And, I want to suggest... It is on real that this passage pivots. At real, sharp plosives and short vowels transform into the elegaic sounds of the falling of the leaves in autumn. 
On one level, autumn works as a straightforward metaphor for old age, with Letty and Marcia as the leaves. But on another level, autumn here echoes Nietzsche's idea of eternal return, a moment which all life will repeat, including the staff, regardless of their ability to comprehend it. So in the first part of the passage, the reader finds age as a condition, a word which chimes with the idea that from the late 20th century onwards, old age has been increasingly medicalised. In the second part, that common sense notion is set aside, and it is on this other side of the real that the text positions Letty and Marcia. Let me read that bit again. The conclusions reached and the recommendations drawn up had no real bearing on the retirement of Letty and Marcia, which seemed as inevitable as the falling of the leaves in autumn. The clause that comes after real works as a minor gesture, a term used by Erin Manning to signal a shift in affect, an act of rebellious creativity, a kind of nonsense that opens to possibility and potential. So Pym's prose both undermines common sense ideas of retirement and finds a new sense of ageing as affect, as affective potential. But nonsense in Quartet in Autumn is not just a feature of the novel's linguistics and syntax. There is also a kind of bodily nonsense apparent in the text, a nonsense that comes into sharp focus in the contrasts between Letty and Marcia. Letty lives her life trying to follow common sense. She dresses and behaves as she thinks she should. As a result, Letty's retirement leads to feelings of emptiness and regret. She is troubled by the bodies of dead animals and birds on a walk in the country as they remind her of the linear trajectory her own body is on. On returning to the office for a visit, she, quote, again experienced the feeling of nothingness when it was borne in on her so forcibly that she and Marcia had been phased out in this way as if they had never existed, unquote. Until the very end of the novel, a common-sense reading of age as loss and decline makes itself felt in and on Letty's body. In contrast, Marcia's body doesn't make sense. At the retirement party, her peering beady eyes and dyed hair mean that no one has the courage to approach her. She just doesn't fit. In fact, the reader knows that Marcia has been dyeing her hair the same way for 30 years. She doesn't age as others think she should. Instead, she moves through the novel as another minor gesture, unsettling the text and those around her. Towards the end of the novel, Marcia dies. But her death is not the conclusion that common sense fears. Echoing perhaps Cordelia's ambiguous last moments in King Lear, we are told that at her death, Marcia smiled and the frown left the doctor's face and he seemed to be smiling back at her. She's not just happy here, it's also a moment of connection, a moment in which Marcia leaves a legacy of her smile behind. Death for Marcia is not despair. She is tuned into a different affective register. Rachel C. Lee says that affective intensity is a function of something ineffable, the suspension of meaning, which we might also see as the plurality, the potentiality of plural indeterminate meanings. Marcia's death then is a calling forth of that potential, 
are calling forth of plural indeterminate meanings which defy common sense notions of old age. In sum, ageing is only a problem if we want to hold on to the illusions of a human being as a rational, independent entity that's able to take care of itself. If we set that illusion aside, then thinking about ageing as change rather than deterioration puts a very different spin on getting older. In Quartet in Autumn, Barbara Pym reimagines ageing as a becoming, as a never complete but always open movement towards. In other words, ageing as affect gives a unique twist to you're as old as you feel, and perhaps gives me hope that I am not too old quite yet for a PhD. But Pym's novel also underlines that affect has a material as well as an emotional domain. That materiality, that materiality, is the potential of individual bodies to act and to become, to consider in their own way the infinite possibilities for change. Mary, thank you so much again for speaking to us today. It's such a pleasure to be back thinking about PIM, Quartet, Ageing and Affect with you once more. My first question um, is kind of rewinding right back to the start of things. I was really interested to hear how you first encountered quartets and what led you to think first about ageing and affect within the text. Thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me today. It's lovely to see you again. These thoughts have been going round in my mind for, you know, must be two, three years now, I think. I first came across Barbara Pym's work um, and Quartet in Autumn. I, I spent some time away from the academy, so I had about sort of 20, 25 years of work experience working in the third sector and came back to do an MA about three years ago um, at Leeds in English. And one of my modules was around mid-century literature. And it was kind of like, I'd never come across this era before. You know, I'd heard of some of the people that we were reading, but as a period, it was fascinating to me. It was this sort of almost blank space in the middle of the century. So I did a lot of reading around. I just found lots and lots of other authors that were writing during this period and tried to read as much as possible, mainly out of just really personal interest, and came across Barbara Pym's work, and particularly Quartet in Autumn, which was the first one of hers I read, and is quite an anomaly in relation to all of her other texts. She started writing in the 50s, just after the war, and then had this huge break in the middle where nobody would publish her work. And then in 1977, she suddenly came back into interview and she was nominated for the Booker Prize and you know everything took off and she got caught at Norton published. So it's a, it's a fascinating work in that context, but it was also this really strange novel that seemed to be really, it's quite realist in some ways, it's very straightforward, not much happens, but it's also really dark and really interesting and it just really gripped my attention. I just couldn't work out what was happening, I wanted to understand it more and I kept thinking about it and it's quite a generative novel in terms of age and ageing studies, but not really from the view of affect and when I started thinking about affect and learning more about it, when I started doing my PhD, I was really struck by how ageing is not really material or biological in Quartet in Autumn. It is material, but it's not biological and it's not linear. And affect to me really seemed to 
help me to understand something about what is going on in the novel, that so much is um, working almost on a different plane, in a, in a very different way, in this kind of virtual sense that Deleuze talks about. I suppose, how did I come to it, is it just became a, a bit of a, I think obsession is perhaps a little bit too far, um, <laughs> but it just wouldn't quite leave me alone. Um, and I really just wanted to know what it was doing. Uh, and affect seemed to speak to what was happening in the novel, and the novel seemed to speak to what was happening in affect through this medium of ageing. And it's not a linear process, so I don't think I'm saying this causes this or this causes that but all three things kind of seem to come together to suggest something to me, I think. I love those books that when you read them, they just stick with you. And really, like you said, it's a generative piece of work. It's such an interesting text as well. Um, and as you were speaking then, I just thought the word in between kept coming up. Like it's like this odd bit, like you said, in between something that we think of maybe as modernism and postmodernism. Um, in that, like you said, this group of mid-century writers, it's a time in her life where Pym is in between states. I, I think she'd just retired when she wrote Quartet. Am I right in, th in saying that? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, this in-between period where she's not publishing and then she suddenly is publishing again so there's kind of that quiet time as well like you said it's in between embodied experience of aging and then it's also immaterial there's I think there's a lot about being in between states and like you said on different planes of of being and trying to work out yeah those um, all those effective possibilities around ways of being and ways of being in the world and and ways of being in the world within an aging body as well I think there's such a lot of readings and I just really loved all the close readings especially I'm just so interested um, in the in the close readings in particular I've wanted to ask you um, a little bit about Marcia's death scene if that's okay I really love that the sense of connection between Marcia and the doctor um, that you describe through the act of smiling and I thought that was quite a nice space um, to kind of think about the circulation maybe of affect and that smile and that maybe is it joy that's um, being circulated here um, which feels like a connection but also a disconnection from what we might think of traditionally as being attached to a death scene and like you said that smile seems to carry on past Marcia's death which is a ramble in itself I'm so sorry I'm just repeating um, <laughs> your brilliant close reading but thinking about in between states are there any other moments of such connections, assemblages, or in-between states in the book that you're thinking about? Yeah, that's a, a really interesting question. Um, I think in-between and, and middling is a really evocative way of thinking about the novel. And retirement almost is a kind of phase shift. So, so it's a threshold space. And we look at the world differently from thresholds. We can see different things. We become doubly possible, almost. Um, and I think that's something about what's going on in Quartet in Autumn, that idea that when you're in between, you can see more than when you are firmly in one state or the other. You were set free, which is frightening. And Letty's story, in contrast to Marcia's, is about that fear of the in-between, the fear of transition, um, the exposure that happens when you're not within a, a clear structure, maybe also the sort of um, uncomfortableness of being in-between, of being not quite in one place or another. So I think I am doing some work at the moment in the text around Letty and about around what it means 
to think of her as being uncomfortably in between, in contrast to Marcia's more joyous in between. The, the idea that sort of disconnected from, from these structures and in that transition phase, that can be a positive, that can be something that means that you can see the world differently. And I think that it's the acknowledgement of affect, I think, that for both characters, being in between gives them a connection to affect as a as something non-material, non-specific, non-structured, and as that sense of possibility, I think. So affect as possibility, I'm really interested in. Affect as a kind of neutral state that can be negative or positive. And I think Letty and Marcia are the two halves of that. Letty reads the affect of aging as, as quite negative and quite challenging, whereas Marcia reads it as much more positive, which means she's able to kind of pass that on and share that with the doctor and change as change is neutral we give that a structure of kind of positive or negative I think so yeah sorry I'm rambling too um but yeah I think you're absolutely right that transition is a really important aspect of the novel in betweenness is a really important aspect of the novel all of the characters are in between to some sense they're in between society on a social level they're not quite in work but not quite out of work there's a section where they talk about you know Marcia and Letty will be replaced won't be replaced because what they did nobody ever really <laughs> understood so they're not really anywhere they're in this nowhere space and for me that's what makes affect much more accessible and much more relevant to the novel um, if they were very firmly rooted in the I don't know the everyday politics of their office that would put them in a different place to where they are and they're more open and available to affect I think because of their in-betweenness uh, yeah Marcy's in-betweenness Letty's in-betweenness and it's how they're reading that I think is a really interesting uh, way of thinking about the novel I'm really interested in that the change and and those possibilities do you use these kinds of readings elsewhere in your research um, so I know you're um, looking at other mid-century writers and I'm wondering are these kind of threads that you trace through your research more broadly or is it something that you see specifically happening within Quartet? That's a really interesting question I think. Um, so affect I find most strongly in Quartet compared to some of the other novels that I'm looking at. That sense of the effectual dimension, effective possibility and potential I see really strongly in Quartet. But actually the idea of middles and middling is something that comes up in lots of different places. So I'm pairing Quartet in Autumn with a reading of The Passion of New Eve by Angela Carter, um, which is an unusual pairing um, in terms of these two novels. But, you know, in The Passion of New Eve, from my perspective, Angela Carter is also exploring the middle ground. Her middling is slightly different. It, it's in some ways a little bit more linguistic. She's kind of collapsing this distinction between metaphoric language and literal language just to create one messy middle that is unknown and unknowable and, and full of possibility. And it's slightly less effectual, I think. It's slightly less effective in its tone, but it is definitely something in there about middle and middling. And so, yeah, I think throughout my research, this idea of the middle being a really interesting place to be a really a place full of possibilities is something that's coming up really strongly and obviously I'm working on the mid-century so you know I kind of would have to argue that wouldn't I um, but I still think it's there in the texts I think we I think society human the kind of my work is through the lens of critical posthumanism and humanism is a, a fairly linear trajectory uh, reading 
life through to death as a one-way direction. And what I love about affect is that it overturns that. It isn't linear. It's ever-present and all around, and it's not moving in a particular direction. And the texts that I'm looking at are very much in that middle space, rethinking linearity or thinking different about um, that kind of trajectory. That's so interesting. The middling, that word, is just so brilliant as well. And I can really see that in Passion of New Eve and in Quartet. I loved, in your reading of Quartet, the delusion theory and the idea of nonsense. Is that something that you see within Carter's work as well? Very, very much so. Very much so. It comes out slightly differently. It's slightly more overt in some ways. So I do a close reading of four or five sentences from Carter and it's so full of illusion but if we strip the illusion out it just doesn't make any sense she talks about i think one of the phrases is i am a blank page but when we're reading the page you can't be a blank page it's there in front of us so i i definitely think it's there i think it's more subtle in pym the nonsense is is yeah slightly more subtle i think but in carter it's very overt and it's definitely there in her work and it's it's fascinating the play within pym's work especially around the reading of the space weather in the the office and the, the around that word real and the way that the mm. sentence comes something completely other it's so playful i really see that um in in both works there are there any other instances in which the kind of text really crumbles, like you said, um, in, in Pym's work through this nonsense? Yes, I'm, there's, there's lots. <laughs> I, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> one of them, for example, which I'm, I'm really intrigued by is towards the beginning. So the, the novel opens in a library. The four characters go to the library at different times. It, the implication is they're kind of interacting and you have to really close read the text to realise they're not there at the same time. They're always missing each other and always different, but they're brought into one space because the library assistant, I think the phrase is something like, if he saw them at all, he would have thought they were all part of the same group. And it's so layered, this, if he saw them, well, he didn't see them, but we're led to believe that they're all part of the same thing. And it's really creating a novel out of what isn't there out of the spaces in between, and which I think is really interesting given it's called quartet with that allusion to music and how music is so dependent on the spaces in between the notes. And Pym is really attuned to what doesn't happen, which makes a nonsense of some of the aspects of the plot, really. And there's a, there's a sentence in that library scene where um, Letty is looking for a book for, to, looking for a novel. She's an, a quite unashamed reader of novels and she can't find one. She can't find one that reflects herself. So we've got this kind of postmodernism where Pym is writing the book that doesn't exist in the world of the novel but writing it for the world of the reader and writing herself into that gap as well as kind of stubbing her nose a little at the publishing industry that wouldn't publish her for a large number of years. But at the same time that novel doesn't exist in the world of the novel so Letty can't find herself so we've got this very layered text that the more I read it the more it sense just seems to slip it's not nonsense in the in the sort of Lewis Carroll version or the Angela Carter version where metaphors come alive but it's nonsense in that it's very difficult to get a handle on sense there isn't a clarity about meaning or direction. So much of the writing just 
is about things that didn't happen. It's absolutely fascinating and really, really benefits from that, that detailed attention to the text to see what Pym is doing. Because it's, I keep finding things in the novel that it's like, oh, but that didn't. She's just saying it might have, and then it didn't, and ah. It, yeah, so it's it's fantastic. It's fantastic, really. I love those readings. It's so playful, and it's so disorientating, which I think is another effective register that you have to contend with when you're reading Quartet and reading Carter. It's, yeah, just so, so interesting, like you said. Really, I want to go and read that book immediately now and <laughs> read that library scene. <laughs> Miriam, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure to speak about these close readings, about your work. Just thank you so much for joining us on the Technica. You are very welcome. It's been absolutely lovely. Thank you so much. If you would like to hear Mary's paper at the symposium recorded back in September, or if you would like to learn more about the following the Effective Turn project, you can look it up on Twitter at Effective Turn and we'll leave a few links in the notes of this episode. We'll be back on the 20th of December with another Effectively Charged episode, where Julian will be speaking to the brilliant Joe Jukes about their research on rural feelings, queerness and emotional spaces. If you have organised a conference, project or symposium and would like to speak to us about building a theme to celebrate the work presented there, please do get in touch. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Please also keep an eye on our Twitter page, which is at Technicaster, to keep up to date with our themed call for papers. Or if you would like to be featured on the podcast, do drop us an email at technicaster at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, liking and sharing this with anyone you think that might be interested so more people can hear about the incredible research being currently undertaken. Thanks again to Mary for her time and for joining us on the Technicast today. And thanks to the Techni Doctoral Training Partnership for their ongoing support. And thanks very much to you for listening. Take care.